continuing this morning our journey through the book of Acts. We've been at this for a long time, and uh, we continue. This morning, though, uh, as we begin, I don't want to take you back 2,000 years to the action there. Instead, I just want to go back about 400 years, and not to Jerusalem, but I want to go back to Bedford County, England. Now, Bedford County is the place in Great Britain where the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, spent 12 years in prison. He spent 12 years in prison in Bedford County, England during the 1600s because of his preaching. (laughs) Not that it was criminally bad. I have heard some criminally bad sermons. But uh, John Bunyan was in prison because he would not join the official Church of England and preach there. And uh, so his preaching was considered an act of rebellion against the state. So they put him in prison. Um, John Bunyan was a writer. And because he lived during the Elizabethan era, you might be inclined to, uh, you might be tempted rather to picture him as a mild-mannered and meek or maybe weak person. But that is not true at all. John, John Bunyan, by all accounts, was a massive man. And preaching was his hobby. He did that in his free time. To make a living, John Bunyan was a tinker, which means he traveled from town to town fixing pots and pans. And one of the most important tools that a tinker would have would be an anvil. John Bunyan's anvil weighed 60 pounds. It's on display in Great Britain. You can see it. His name is inscribed in the bottom of it. And uh, he was too poor to have a horse or a wagon, so John Bunyan carried his 60-pound anvil from town to town, place to place. He'd put it on his back along with his tools and any spare pots and pans that he had with him to sell, and he walked, and he walked all over England, and he preached. Uh, He was a massive, broad-shouldered mountain of a man. He, He... he was tough, but he had this tenderness about it. The Bible condemn, uh, commends this in mature masculinity, this combination of toughness and tenderness, and John Bunyan epitomized it. Well, one of the times, there's a scene from his imprisonment that I want to think with you about for just a minute this morning. <clears throat> he was visited one day by a Quaker friend, another nonconformist, and, and he said to, ben, uh, to Bunyan in prison, pardon my Elizabethan English, the Quaker said, Friend, the Lord has sent me to thee, and I have been seeking thee in half the prisons in England. And Bunyan replied, Nay, verily, that cannot be. No, that can't be true. For if the Lord had sent thee to me, thou wouldst have come here at once, for he knows I have been here for years. If God had really sent you, you wouldn't have been wandering around because God knows where I have been. He knows how long I've been here. He knows everything about my circumstances. God didn't send you. You've been lost on your own. Um, I appreciate this scene, this observation that John Bunyan made because it helps focus my attention on what may have been going through the Apostle Paul's mind as he himself sat in prison. We're walking through the book of Acts and for the last 25% of the book of Acts, The last seven chapters, Paul's in jail. He was first behind bars in Jerusalem. And if you had gone to Jerusalem and asked some of the people who thought he should be in jail, why is he there? They would tell you, Paul is in prison. He deserves to be in prison because he's a traitor. He's a traitor to his education. He's a traitor to his family. He's a traitor to his people. He's a traitor to his faith. 
He's a traitor because he goes out and works with those Gentiles, those non-Jews, those people who don't have the, the Old Testament and they don't have the temple like we do. He's a traitor. Now, we've discovered from reading the book of Acts that that actually is exactly what the Lord Jesus wanted done, right? Wanted to be done. I've lived in Lancaster County 16 years. I just dropped my to be verb. Isn't that terrible? Well, so uh, this is what Jesus wanted. Acts chapter 1, he, he, uh, we see the risen Jesus and he speaks to his followers and he says, I want you to go around the world. I want you to go out and you're going to tell who I am and what I have done and you're going to call people to believe in me and I want you to start here in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea, Samaria, uh, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and that's the story that we've been following through the book of Acts. They, they made tremendous progress in that. Here we are, 5,800 miles and 2,000 years from Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, and we are worshiping the Lord Jesus. We're at the ends of the earth, aren't we, from Jerusalem. Now, what happens here when this, this first group of mainly Jewish followers of Jesus, when, when they start to push out against some of their ethnic boundaries, uh, God chooses a very strange man to uh, carry the message forth. A very strange man. He was a violent, angry, proud person. Um, he was violent and angry and proud. At the same time, he was the epitome of all the things, uh, many of the things that the Jews thought were very important. In fact, he followed the rules of being a Jew better than almost anybody of his generation. He revered the temple. He studied the religious teachings. He looked down on anyone who wasn't as faithful as he was, and his name was Paul. Of course, his life was turned upside down, wasn't it? In Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He confronted Paul. He confronted Paul about how he was clinging to his obedience for his confidence before God. This is the way most people live. Um, To be on God's good side, you need to be good. That's how most people live and think. The Lord Jesus confronted him about that and and he called him to believe, to turn and trust in him. And then he commissioned Paul to go. So he confronted him, he called him, he commissioned him. And Paul spent, we've been walking with him, haven't we? We've been walking with him through all these Gentile towns as Paul goes and talks about the Lord Jesus and calls the same thing that the Lord Jesus did with him, confronting people about their idolatry, their rebellion against God and calling them to believe in him. Uh, But now here, we've come to the point where Paul has returned to Jerusalem. And some of the same people, some of those same men and women who screamed out against the Lord Jesus. It's not the same people, it's at least their children or their nieces and nephews. The same people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him in the city. Have been crying out, away with Paul, away with Paul, away with Paul. So he's in prison. Uh, the Romans arrested him. They didn't really know why they arrested him. And actually, they tried to figure it out. The whole, whole rest of the book of Acts is Romans trying to figure out, does this man deserve to be arrested or not? And the Jews are opposing him. That's the whole, whole theme. And, and the text that has before us 
in Acts chapter 23, which is where I'd like you to turn in your Bibles if you haven't already there with me. Acts chapter 23, you can turn there in your Bible or uh, the Pew Bible ahead of you. In fact, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible at all, please feel free to take one of those Bibles with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We have extra copies of those Bibles just so you can take one if you don't have one. But in Acts chapter 23, it's a very strange passage of Scripture before us because it's a passage of Scripture where God is apparently silent and Jesus is never mentioned, not once. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about God's behind-the-scenes work. Or uh, to be more specific, more theological, we're going to talk about God's providence from Acts chapter 23. So uh, let's read the text, shall we? Acts 23, I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse uh, 35, all the way to the end of the chapter. And uh, this is a scene that takes place after Paul's second trial. He's still in prison. The next morning, verse 12 says, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. They're going to ambush Paul. But when the son of Paul's sister heard about this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want me to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to, uh, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Here it is, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that their accusation had to do with questions about the law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry, cavalry go on with him while they returned to their barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's 
palace. So, did you notice in this passage here, God's name's not mentioned once. Jesus isn't mentioned. There's apparently no miracles in this passage. Nothing, nothing specific. And yet God here is very much at work. I think this whole passage flows from a verse, a promise that God had made to Paul back in verse 11 of Acts 23. Do you remember? This is the night before the Lord Jesus appeared to, to Paul and he said, Paul, take courage. Just as you've testified me about, about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify about me in Rome. There's the promise that's made. And then what we just read, those uh, over 20 verses, is the way that God works this promise out. This is God working behind the scenes, or again, His providence. Chapter 1, the Lord Jesus says of Acts, Go to the ends of the earth. Chapter 23, he appears to Paul and he says, don't worry, you're going to Rome. And the rest of chapter 23 is how God is going to fulfill that promise. So this section really is about God's power, his ability to make his purposes happen or his providence. Theologian Millard Erickson defines providence this way. He says, Providence is the continuing action of God by which he does two things. Number one, he preserves in existence the creation which he has brought into being. And secondly, he guides it to his intended purposes for it. God guiding. We're reading a book about providence at our house um, with um, our kids, and it's a book for children about providence. And, And this book for children about providence says that when you think about God's providence, you should think about your eyes and your hands. God is always watching, and God is always working. God's providence. I want to make four observations about providence from this text this morning, and then it doesn't cover everything that the Bible says. We, I, I know that, but it gives us a good start. And then we're going to talk about ways to respond to the fact that God providentially rules the world. This is a very important chapter. It's a very important concept in the Bible. The reason that it's so important is because we live in a broken world that's full of suffering and that makes us ask questions about what God is doing and where God is. Uh, Here the suffering is prison. Maybe for you the, the suffering is disease or loss or loneliness. Some of you wonder... By this time, you thought for sure you'd be married, you'd be raising kids, and that hasn't happened the way you wanted in the time frame that you wanted. Or you and your spouse, you had had great plans about what you were going to do after you retired, uh, but um, he's gone. Nothing that you expected has happened. What if you have the college degree like everyone told you that you need, that you need this degree, but you just can't get your career moving? Let's think together about God's providence here. Four observations about it. Number one, God's providence indicates that he knows your circumstances completely. He knows your circumstances completely. Complete knowledge is one of the prerequisites of providence. You can't providentially rule if you don't know. Charles Spurgeon loved this promise or this verse, this phrase. It was in verse 11 of of Acts 23. The Lord stood near Paul. This is what he wrote about that, about that. The Lord has not lost sight of Paul because he was shut up in the jail. 
God has not a single jewel laid by and forgotten. Thou, God, seest me as a great consolation to one who delights himself in the Lord. Many and diverse are the prisons of affliction in which the Lord's servants are shut up. One may be lying in the prison of pain, chained by the leg or by the hand through accident or disease. Or perhaps he is shut up in the narrow cell of poverty or in the dark room of bereavement or in the dungeon of mental depression. But the Lord knows in what ward his servant is shut up and he will not leave him to pine away forgotten as a dead man out of mind. Think about in this passage what God knows. What does he have to know in order to fulfill the promise he made in verse 11? Well, he's got to know about this plot. He's got to know about how many people there are, 40 guys who really hate Paul. He's got to know what they're planning to do. He's got to know who's going to cooperate in this plan. He's got to know when this plan is going to happen. It's all this knowledge that God knows this intimately, what's happening here. Just as as an aside here, what's interesting is these 40 men are very upset. They're very angry at Paul for breaking the law. And in order to show how angry they are at him for breaking the law, what are they going to do? They're going to break the law by this plot. God knows all about their plan, and he knows all about the necessary resources to foil it. Is there anything, any detail that is beyond his attention, that he can't weave, that he has not already woven into his plans? God's certain knowledge has always been the hope of his people. There's, think about two, two characters in the Hebrew scriptures. One of them is named Hagar. Hagar was pregnant, and she was kicked out of her home, and... To die, essentially, left to die. God appears to her and he says, Hagar, um, be encouraged. And, and he tells Hagar about the child she's going to have. She tells him it's going to be a boy. This is the ultimate in ultrasound technology when God tells you what you're going to have. You're going to have a son. She told, he, he, God told Hagar all about his son's life, what he was going to be like, what he was going to experience. And when, when it was said and done, Hagar responded to God and said, you are... Uh, El Roe, you are the God who sees me. You know. Uh, Job was a suffering man, and when he was confused, it appeared to him that, that heaven was silent until in Job 23 he confesses, Oh, the Lord knows the way that I take. The Lord knows. He is aware. God knows. In fact, he knows the circumstances of your life better than you know them. That's first. Now, second here, God's providence means that he has the power to change your circumstances. He has the power to change your circumstances. God's providence is not just a doctrine of the eye. It is a doctrine of the hand, too. Um, Look at what God does. He mobilizes a Roman commander, 470 soldiers, 470 soldiers, 70 horses, well, 71 or two, depending on how many Paul needed, and a Roman governor. This is God at work here, getting this uh, platoon together. He, he knows, and he's able to do something about it. Watching and working. Now think, imagine for a minute what it would be like if God knows your circumstances completely, but is unable to do anything about them. What if he has perfect knowledge, but imperfect power? If the first is true, but not the second thing about his providence. What would that be like? Well, 
it would be, uh, God would be very sympathetic, wouldn't he? The world needs more sympathy and more empathy. I, I, I certainly would welcome more sympathy in, in the world. But it would make God a bit like a hospice nurse. I'm not trying to, to be negative about hospice nurses. They're wonderful people. But think about how they function, right? They are they're experts. They're experts at noticing subtle changes in people that indicate that death is near. When I, when I go to the hospice center, I am... I'm always impressed by the staff that works there and how they care for people and what they do and how observant they are. One time I was there, I was visiting somebody many, many years ago, and as I was uh, leaving, the nurse stopped me and said, you shouldn't go, come back. And she had seen, and I was there when the man passed away 30 minutes later. They're, they're very knowledgeable, very sympathetic, but they can't undo what's happening in the hospice center. Every patient who walks in there is going to be carried out. A lot of knowledge, a lot of wonderful knowledge put to great use in sympathetic care, but no power to change what happens at the hospice center. Now, if God had power, if he had all power, but he had no real knowledge, that would be worse. He wouldn't be hospice nurse God. He'd be Incredible Hulk God. Because the Incredible Hulk has amazing power, but no understanding. In fact, the Incredible Hulk only knows how to do one thing, smash. The God in this text is not a hospice nurse God, and he is not Incredible Hulk God. He has knowledge, and he has power, and he exercises them both. There is in these twin twin truths a sweetness, but there's also a measure of inscrutability here in this passage. Um, Notice this third thing about providence here. Um, God's providence doesn't eliminate suffering. God's providence does not eliminate suffering. God can do what he wants, but he does not do what I want him to do. Suffering is part of God's providential plan for, his, for our good, for his glory. God has the power to intervene here. He, he saves Paul from this plot, but he doesn't use his power to save Paul from prison, does he? Even though, even though the Roman governor or commander knows he should be let go, verse 29, he's done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. Well, let him go then if he's done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. But think about what happens here as the story develops. This Plot gets Paul out of Jerusalem and into Caesarea, one step closer to Rome, oh, Jesus had told him he was going to Rome, and one step higher on the chain of command in uh, the Roman uh, hierarchy. If Paul had made it to Rome by himself, he would have walked onto a dock and been there or walked into town on one of the major routes, and he would have started there at the bottom uh, trying to share Uh, and speak to people about the Lord Jesus. What actually happened is that Paul went in chains and he started at the top with the highest order of society. That's how God is working this out for Paul's testimony, his, his goodness, Paul's good and God's glory. John Piper wrote a book called The Sweet and Bitter Providence. Listen to what he says. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback, 
And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth and Paul is to feel, help us feel in our bones, not just know in our minds, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. His providence includes suffering. Now, fourth here, notice, God's providence does not eliminate human activity. It doesn't eliminate human activity. Let's think for a minute about Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew. Where did Paul's nephew come from? We know nothing about this man except in this one episode here. You might, I wonder, some of you on the inside, when I was reading this, in your mind as it was going along, you read this and you thought, wait a minute, Paul has a sister? What? Where did she come from? Who is this woman? Where, what? Well, Paul's nephew is there. And he hears about the plot. How did Paul's nephew hear about this plot? Oh, I don't know. Nobody knows. There's a lot of speculation. Actually, F.F. Bruce has a very intriguing suggestion about what, how, how Paul's nephew heard about this plot. When Paul was giving his testimony in the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says, For the sake of Christ, I've lost everything. And many interpreters believe that that means that Paul, when he, turned, when he became a follower of Jesus, he was disinherited, cut off from his family. It's very possible. It happened to a lot of the first followers of Jesus who were Jewish. When they became followers of Jesus, they were cut off from their family. And maybe that's what had happened to Paul, that he had become a pariah to his family. And maybe one of these plotters came up to Paul's nephew and said, Hey, we're going to take care of your problem. Finally, (laughs) you won't have to be embarrassed about him because for Paul, we're going to take care of it for you. Maybe. Actually, some people think that maybe he was... He was part of these 40 people that he, he, he squeaked his way into this group. Maybe he just heard about it because, you know, everybody blabs, right? 40 guys, how are you going to keep a secret? It's never going to happen. The nephew visits Paul. He tells Paul about the plot, and Paul immediately takes action. Notice, Paul does not say, eh, no big deal. Jesus told me I'm going to go to Rome. Go home, don't worry about it. It's not at all what Paul does. Paul is is at work. He's always at work here. Uh, Paul, in in the book of Acts, he's he's preparing his defense. He's plotting how to represent Jesus well. He's doing what he has been commissioned to do repeatedly, strongly, over and over again. He's going to get to Rome. He knows that, but God's going to use very, very normal, very human means. God does that all the time. Now, noticing this here, this, this, this... combination of the promise of the Lord Jesus and the activity of Paul, um, it, it, it helps me. It gives me another opportunity to quote that line from our doctrinal statement that I like so much when we think about God's sovereign will and our human actions. Some of you can quote it by now. I've quoted it enough. Listen, God works everything in accordance with his perfect will, though his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. Paul at work. God's providence doesn't eliminate human activity. How does an apostle sit in prison? Or more directly, how how do you suffer? With the promises and presence of Jesus. That's verse 11. We talked about that last time. And here for verses 12 and following, how does a follower of Jesus suffer with confidence in God's providence? 
He knows he's able to act. His presence, his promises, his providence. This is nourishing truth. Frankly, I feel inadequate to to describe how wonderful this is, but we see it working out in in this prison in Jerusalem. God at work through this murderous plot and an officious Roman commander and and a group of burly soldiers and and a nephew. God watching, God working. And these truths, they're they're foundational for so many of the things that Paul lived and Paul believed. In fact, things that Paul wrote. Why do we revel in the providence of God? It saves us. It saves us from being anxious, from worrying. In this stretch of time, this, he didn't write it. He hadn't written it yet. But over the, what's going to happen in this Roman imprisonment during these these seven chapters, Paul's going to write a letter to the church in Philippi, and he's going to say to them, "Oh, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God." How did Paul know that? Paul knew that because he's seen God at work. You don't, you don't need to be anxious or worry because of God's providence. The providence of God helps us. It, it keeps us not only from being anxious and being worrying. It keeps us from being discouraged because it, it means that no matter what we endure, uh, the, the story isn't over yet. Until it is clearly, until the circumstances of your life are revealed as clearly being for your good and, and God's glory, uh, there's still more to come, still more to happen, still more things that God's going to work out next. We're just waiting for the next chapter. Every Tuesday morning when I go into my office, one of the first things I do is I make a list. Um, it's a list of things that I have to do that week. I write Everything I can think of goes on the list, things I need to accomplish. When suffering comes, when sorrow enters your life, you can write it on the list, put it on the list, the list of things that God has yet to bring to completion. Put it down. Put it down on your prayer list. (laughs) It's going to get done. Just, Just be patient. God is watching and God is working. He can be trusted. Now, these things are written here uh, not just so that you can know that it's true, but so that you can, you can uh, Luke wants to press you in how you respond to it. He, he wants to go further. In fact, there's two paths that we think of when we read this passage when it comes to responding to God's providence. He, here they are. The first one is opposition. Opposition to God. That's the path that these Jewish leaders choose, Right? They're going to oppose what God is doing through Paul. They're going to fight back against it. Darrell Bach says that this story shows us that when we take matters into our own hands, we often don't have as much control as we think we do. Their plan started to unravel very quickly. One wonders if there were 40 men who suddenly died of hunger and thirst in Jerusalem. Um, Actually, there's a provision in the Old Testament for canceling oaths like this. Even when they seem to be winning, I don't know who, who, some guy had this idea. He starts recruiting people and the team gets bigger and bigger. Man, there's 40 guys on our team. We're really going to win. And they go to the chief priest and the, and the chief priest said, oh yeah, that's a good idea. We'll call him down to the Sanhedrin in a while. This is going to go good. This is going to go great. This is going to work. Even when they seem to be winning, they're still heading for a sure loss. This could serve as a warning to you. 
could serve as a warning to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and there is fight in you, you are setting yourself up against a God you cannot outsmart, you cannot outmaneuver, and you cannot overpower. Actually, it, it might serve as a warning to you if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm in opposition. It's, it's a form of comfort to those who are followers of Jesus, isn't it? When we suffer apparent loss, this keeps us from being bitter, keeps us from getting angry or cynical, keeps our church from holing up in our own strange hovel of bitterness and cynicism. It keeps us from being internally focused because if we're following Jesus Christ faithfully and closely, no matter what happens, we will never ever be on the wrong side of history. We never can be because he's the one who sets history out. He's determined, he determines what history is going to do, what it's going to be. We can be fined, we can be imprisoned, we can be martyred, we can be rejected, we can be mocked. We can endure because we're on the winning side. And we don't have to be angry about it. Opposition. Now, opposition is here, it's clear, it's in all these chapters. I actually think that the greatest threat is not opposition, but the worst one is the second one here. It's indifference. Indifference. This is the response of the Romans. In contrast to what the Romans believe, Christianity is not a system to be worked on or managed or handled. It is to be believed and obeyed. Claudius, he wants to pass Paul on. He wants to get him through the system. He wants to work him on up to the higher authorities with as little damage as possible to his own reputation. Let's just pass him on. And then Felix here, he wants to see, well, what providence is he? Is he my business? I don't know. I'll find out. Let's see. Let's manage this the right way. Let's make sure everything is done properly. Um, That it doesn't touch me. That it doesn't impact me. Did you notice? Claudius. Oh, Claudius. Verse 27. Um, Do you notice how he shades the truth here in verse 27? I rescued him, uh, Paul, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Is that actually what happened? No. Claudius didn't learn that he was a Roman citizen until after he was about to flog him. Oops. Well, Claudius just wants to pass Christianity on with as little damage to himself as possible without ever really thinking about or understanding what Paul is saying when he says that Jesus is Lord. Think about what this is like when, when, when you visit a zoo. Think, think about visiting a zoo. We were, a, a couple of years ago, we went to the Cape May Zoo, and, and for some reason the male lion on the zoo that day was particularly noisy. I'd never heard such a noisy lion. He was roaring, and he was huff, huff, huffing a little bit. And there was this sound that was just emanating through the whole zoo. You could hear it everywhere in the zoo. It, it, it almost was, you could almost shake, it almost shook you as you, as you heard this, this lion huffing and roaring. It was a lion, this massive animal, the paw the size of my head and teeth the size of my fingers. It can outrun you, it can outfight you, it can out-eat you any day. Eat you out, too, that too. But the lion was behind a fence. I was in a cage. No problem. I was very impressed. Uh, 
a little intrigued, but it really made no difference in my life at all, actually, seeing that lion. Christianity, though, is not a caged animal. Christianity is not safe. Remember, we've talked about Christianity as a threat. It's not a threat in the way that you think it is. It's not a threat of armed revolt here. Christianity is a threat to your identity. It's a threat to your security. It's a threat to your self-determination. Think about Claudius and what Christianity would be a threat to him. He's a Roman soldier. He's a Roman commander with a position to protect. He paid for his citizenship. He's an important and impressive person. And at all costs, he wants to protect his important position. But the gospel tells us who we are, actually. It tells us that we're creatures made in God's image, that we're designed to have a relationship with Him, to live under His authority in the world that He has made. At the same time, it tells us, though, that we are sinners. We're men and women who live in rebellion against God. We deserve His righteous wrath. When we talk about providence, we do so with an eye that... Everything is not right. Everything is not the way it's supposed to be. God rules over it, over this brokenness. Someday he's going to come very clearly and repair it and make everything right. And the problem is I am part of what is not right in the world that God made. Claudius' position, he must have given him some sense of of security, right? He had power, he had position that he wanted to protect so much so he shades the truth here there's there's no security in this at all if your security and your identity are in your powerful position you're not going to be able to maintain that powerful position forever if your security and your identity are in your looks they're going to fade if they're in your athleticism or your uh, intelligence there's always going to be somebody smarter or faster than you If it's in your money, it can vanish. Building a life, like Claudius here, right? Building a life uh, on yourself and what you can obtain and what you can protect for yourself is like building a sandcastle too close to the shore. The waves are going to constantly be washing it away. There's one true refuge. His name is Jesus Christ. He came and he showed us Well, he showed us what God is like. And as an expression of God's love, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross, dying in our place. He was our substitute so that we could be reconciled to God. And the Bible invites everyone, everyone, Claudius, Felix, these 40 40 men would have received this invitation, this invitation to turn and believe in Jesus, trust in him and what he did on the cross. See, by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ makes a claim on your life that surpasses your own. Jesus is not merely nice. Christianity is not just somewhat helpful. It is terrible truth, truth to be revered and regarded not to be passed on, not to be stapled, not to be sorted and filed with the insurance claims. You can't be indifferent to him. He proves it, doesn't he? He proves you can't be uh, uh, indifferent to him by his mastery over Paul's life. 
over the lives of these 40 men, over 400 soldiers, over a Roman commander, over a Roman governor. He is master. He's master, which is why, which is why we invite everyone to turn and believe in him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that uh, we, because we live in a world that belittles you, we are, we find ourselves easily drawn into this to think small thoughts about you. And this is a passage of scripture that reveals your power and your ability to fulfill your promises. Lord, there are some in our our congregation this morning who need a sweet reminder of your great providence, your great care, that you, according to your promise, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, you work out everything for our good and your glory. We wish, we wish that it did not take so much suffering and yet we're mindful of the price that was paid to redeem us, the suffering that our Lord endured. Father, I pray that you would comfort those here this morning who are going through deep waters that you have called them to go through, and that they would remember that you are always watching and you are always working. Father, for those in our in our room this morning who find themselves indifferent to you and your great son. Lord, remind them you're the God who, without any effort, can mobilize 470 soldiers. You can overturn the plots of 40 men very seriously who have taken oath. You are not to be trifled with. Lord Jesus, you who reign in supremacy at your Father's right hand, uh, you have, being lifted up, are uh, held in great glory. Thank you that through the gospel we see the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us as a congregation to revel in it, love it, and find great joy in it, and transform us by it too. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.